<clears throat> Thank you, Kisa. So a couple weeks ago, I was sick. I'm still kind of getting over it, amazingly enough. These sicknesses we have these days hang on for a little while. Um, but I was sick, and on Saturday, uh, the flu kind of shocked me. And Olivia walked in, and she's like, are you seriously going to try to preach tomorrow? And um, I was like, I think I am. And she's like, let's talk about that, you know. And uh, so Andy's family was also sick, so I called Mark Jung. And Mark uh, preached a great sermon on the book of Ruth. Uh, you may not know that King David was Ruth's great-grandson. King David, who was the greatest king in the history of Israel, is, uh, I'm going to take a moment and juxtapose David a bit against Ahab, uh, who was the worst king of Israel. Uh, they have similarities and they have differences, but I'm going to talk about their similarities a little bit this morning. David... Um, was a man after God's own heart. Uh, David loved the Lord. Uh, He wrote many of the Psalms in your Bible. But the Bible and Christianity are different than any other religion in the world because the Bible reports very honestly about the sins of its leaders. For David, in his case, as he followed the Lord and grew in uh, power, as the Lord blessed him, as his kingdom grew, uh, in 2 Samuel 11... He uh, decided he was going to take it easy. He wasn't going to do what most kings do and go off to war. He was going to stay home, and he found himself lounging around on his rooftop. And I don't believe this was just happenstance. He just happened to see Bathsheba there. Uh, I believe this is um, 10th century uh, B.C. pornography. Um, He intentionally knew she was there, knew she was beautiful, knew the time she was going to be bathing, and was there. And he enjoyed seeing her, and he uh, invited her over. She's a married woman. Uh, They slept together. He finds out later she becomes pregnant. And so he connives away for her husband, who is a faithful and loyal soldier, to be left at the front lines alone so that he would be killed, which is murder. So you have David coveting, wanting something for himself, obsessing over this thing that he wants, abusing power, going after it, bringing this woman into his home. David, who had everything that the world could offer, he brings her over anyway. He's still not content. He then orchestrates the murder of her husband and takes her for himself. In response to that, David writes Psalm 51. He repents deeply. The Lord forgives him, but there are still consequences for his family. There are still consequences for David that go downstream. Now let's talk about Ahab. Ahab is the worst king in the history of Israel, it says in this passage. He was morally the very worst. David perhaps was close to the best. Hmm. But Ahab was the worst, absolutely. He was the worst. It says so in the Bible And what Ahab did is Ahab is the king of Israel, and he had everything, and he's bored. People who have everything are often bored. And he's got a wife who's extremely difficult, let's be honest. And he decides he wants to drink more. Uh, So he wants a vineyard. Uh, I don't think it's any mistake that he chose a vineyard, personally. I think he was really wanting some distraction. And it was about comfort. It was about status. And so he goes after Naboth. He begins to covet. He begins to obsess. 
He wants this vineyard. He can't stop thinking about how bad he wants it, and he can't get it. And so he, like David, what does he do? He takes it for himself. How does he do it? He orchestrates the murder of someone, and he takes possession of the vineyard. In Ahab's case, it is absolutely shocking. It's one of the most shocking stories in the Bible that he would then repent. I've got to admit, on first reading, I think he's just faking it. But he's not because God says to Elijah that he's not. It's a real repentance. It's a real repentance. That is shocking. What is just as shocking is that God, if you know the character of God, it's not shocking, but just on the face of it, that God forgives him, forgives Ahab, and relents from what he is going to do. The repentance of Ahab is shocking, and the forgiveness of God upon simple, true repentance is also shocking. So we're going to talk about this story in a little more detail and get to the end and spend more time on what it looks like for that shocking repentance to happen and the forgiveness of God. So the first seven verses uh, I call being consumed with what we want. Consumed with what we want. Ahab has everything. He's still not content. Some of the world's richest and most powerful and most comfortable people are the least content people. You just have to read the, the tabloids to know that's the case. They've gotten a lot of what they want in life, but like Solomon and Ecclesiastes who had everything, their hearts are still not satisfied. They want more. They crave more. And so Ahab begins to think of what could make him happy. Again, I mentioned he has Jezebel there who's a real piece of work. Maybe she makes it harder. Ahab's mind gets fixed on acquiring the vineyard next door. This guy's name is Naboth. It's a deadly combination for him. He, he probably really wants both comfort and the wine that can be produced there. And he becomes self-consumed. You want to see Ahab here as an example of being self-consumed. The man just constantly thinks about what he wants. He spends all of his time mulling over what he wants. Now, he could want good things. He could want good things. He could want things like leading his family better than he has, leading his wife, leading his children, perhaps leading his nation to love the righteousness of God rather than loving evil, but he's numb to wanting good things. He just wants bad things right now. He wants his neighbor's land. To understand this story, you need to understand something about land ownership in ancient Israel. The value of land at the time wasn't dependent on Zillow. It wasn't dependent on the the latest uh, market transactions that went on in your neighborhood, the best comps available. Land was valued as being a gift from God. It was ancestral land. This was land given to Naboth's family, probably when they came over and they took possession of Canaan. This land is valuable to him not because of market value, but because of the value of God in giving it to his family. There is no example in Israel, in ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, of land being sold in this way, or land being traded in this way. It just was not the way things worked. So the heart of the passage, to understand it, is that the king of God's people is refusing to live by the terms of the covenant relationship that God had set up in Israel. Simply because he wanted the land next door, 
he was willing to jettison thousands of years of history in the way that God worked with his people. He, the king, who's supposed to represent the covenant to the people, because he just wants the vineyard next door, is saying, I don't care about all that. In the midst of his desire for more, he's portrayed as a child in this passage. Because he can't get what he wants, he goes and he lays on his bed and he faces the wall and he is upset. He's moody, he's vexed and sullen. So Ahab shows us in clear and living color the core of the human problem throughout the Old Testament and throughout human history. What he wants dominates everything in his life. He considers his desires, he nurtures his desires, he ignores any other counsel that would make him potentially have different desires. He's just a self-consumed man. And he's an example for us of how many of us live and how our culture tells us to live. We also see here that if you want to drown out the voice of God that comes to you by his word and by his spirit, you can do it. You can do it. If the Lord comes to you and he, he's, he's moving toward you and, or other people are moving toward you and you want to drown out their voice, this is how you do it. You just keep thinking about what it is that you want so badly. Just think about yourself. Think about what you want. And you can drown out the noise that comes when someone wants to correct you. It just shows how sick the heart can become. So then verses 8 through 16, I call this section playing God to control outcomes. Playing God to control outcomes. So his misery is so obvious. His wife sees him like a little baby in the, in the bedroom uh, wanting a vineyard. And so she comes in, Jezebel comes in and promises to give Ahab what God refuses to give him. So Jezebel plays God in the passage. She takes control. She likes to do that. And she, she's basically saying, okay, if God won't give you what you want, then I will show you that I can do better than what God can do. So she comes up with this wicked scheme to have Naboth murdered by his neighbors, faking righteous reasons for his killing, which is important because the king can't take possession of the land unless there's blasphemy involved. There are some legal precedents for how the king can get the land. So the, the story has to be carefully constructed and orchestrated. She goes out and they call a feast and a fast. Naboth thinks he's showing up to be honored by his friends and they actually accuse him. They set two uh, worthless people ahead of him and accuse him of things that aren't true. Everyone says it must be true because there are two witnesses and they quickly take care of business, take him out, and stone him to death and kill him. The, the pace at which the story moves, the precision in which the story moves, exactly according to Jezebel's words, shows that the neighbors are totally complicit. It also shows the degree of godlessness now in Israel, the lack of faithfulness to Yahweh that's existing from the, the, the average person in society. And so they go along with the scheme Naboth is murdered, Jezebel claims the land, like God gives the land to, Naboth, to uh, Ahab, and Ahab again, like a little child, just kind of is shown as being a, almost oblivious to how, the, how this happened, just completely dismissive, 
and just goes in and takes his vineyard. All right, so what can we learn here? When you have the abuse of power from a leader, there is always someone or a group of people who are viewed as nobodies. In order for an abuse of power to happen, the leader or the group of leaders has to, in their own estimation, view certain people as not being important or worthy of being seen or held with regard. Jezebel is from a royal family that does not operate with God's playbook. In her, in Syria and Phoenicia, where she was from, in that playbook, if you're a king, you get what you want. You just go do it. It doesn't matter how you do it. Murder is fine. You're the king. You can do what you want. But in God's kingdom, in God's law, there aren't any nobodies. Everybody's a somebody. Even the king is under God's rule. So Ahab, over time, gave up following the ways of God and his culture and over time replaced those views of God and his culture with Jezebel's views of of reality and, and the cultural story that the Syrians told. And it was easier and easier over time as Ahab was counseled by Jezebel to adopt a completely different worldview, a worldview that worked for him. It actually, he thought, was, was helpful to be able to disregard God and take what he wanted because he just wanted what he wanted. Who was God to stand in the way of what Ahab wanted? He was God, for one. Um, but Ahab didn't care. He needed a narrative. He needed a theology where he was more important than God. And so he reconstructed his own theology to fit his desires. So the caution for us is we need to live life underneath God, underneath his word. We are servants of the Lord and his word. We need the Lord to reform and reshape us. We have to submit to him. If you are someone who has a degree of cultural power, if you have other people who look up to you or report to you, if you have other people in your life whose part of their job and part of their life is to impress you, is to excel so that you will be impressed with them, then we, sh- if you're, I'm in that position and many of you are too, then we need to be incredibly careful. Because if we do not keep God first and recognize that we are under God's authority, if it becomes about our desires and simply executing what we want, then it can be devastating for ourselves and for other people. If you have cultural power, if you're a leader, then you had better be bowing your knee to the Lord on a regular basis or you will hurt many people. It's not just with vineyards. It's with all kinds of things. How can we change what our hearts want? That's really the the heart of this passage. The problem Ahab has is his heart is sick and it's deceitful. He needs to change Because the heart does want what it wants. Well, if you're thinking of coveting something or someone, I would encourage you to stop and remember a right theology of humanity. That that woman that you're thinking about having an affair with is created in the image of God. She is created by God. She is married to someone who is created in the image of God. Your wife, your husband is created in the image of God. 
that woman online that you look at, though she may not value herself and see herself as being made in the image of God, she is made in the image of God. It's easier to see someone as a nobody when you disconnect their body from their personhood, from their being created in God's image. I want to encourage you when you think about sinning, when you think about running over someone else at work to make yourself look better, I want to encourage you to remember that they are somebody because they were created in God's image. And how dare we separate out someone's personhood from another attribute of their being. We need to see people as people created in God's image. But unfortunately for us, when our hearts are sick and we still want what we want, oftentimes we can't counsel ourselves. We can't listen to ourselves. We can't preach the gospel to ourselves because we are part of the problem. And so we get to the next part of the narrative here. This is verses 17 through 24. God's word breaks the momentum of sin. God's word breaks the momentum of sin. So God's words through Elijah condemn Ahab and Jezebel for the murder of Naboth. God is bringing up the sixth commandment simply and saying, the implications of this, you've broken my law, are, are death. Um, the dogs licking up the blood shows the pure feeling of God about their actions. It shows the total rejection of God, the judgment of God over their lives. When Ahab shows, when, when Elijah shows up, Ahab addresses him by saying, Have you found me, O my enemy? Why does he view Elijah as his enemy? Well, it's because Elijah consistently tells some things that he doesn't want to hear. Elijah is the one person in his life, the one relationship he has that tells him what God really thinks about him. He's the one person that might prevent, Naboth, might prevent Ahab from actually just going after full-on what he desires. And that's why he's viewed as an enemy. And even though God is pronouncing these curses on Ahab, Ahab is interestingly still, he's still not thinking about God's judgment and what this is going to mean for his line and for himself. He's still thinking about the vineyard at first. Um, and he hasn't come to his senses yet. So Elijah continues on with the curses. He's been sent to deliver. He announces Jezebel's fate. And as a sign of the judgment, we read in verse 25, the crushing verdict that will end the line of Omri. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, who Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. Then it says that he was the very, very worst, the worst king that Israel ever had in terms of his moral, his moral compass and what he did to others. He was in last place. So God's word comes in and confronts our silly, sick, and sinful idolatry. And when we're in that senseless place, we need the Lord to speak to us, but his words are hard for us to receive. But when we're in that place, though it's hard for us to receive those words, we need to hear them. You know, for me, myself, as I read this passage this week, I can find myself in different places in the story First of all, I'm like Ahab, and I'm like David, and I'm like you, and I'm like me. I need people in my life 
who will speak the truth to me even when I don't want to hear it. And I, I think it's important um, for anyone, especially a pastor, an elder, anyone to have people in their life that can speak those words to them. Um, I also find myself some, sometimes in the place of something like Elijah in the story at times. Um, different from Elijah, the discontinuity would be that I don't receive direct words from the Lord. So um, Elijah did, and so he could very much speak with, with 100% confidence. But I find myself, and sometimes elders find themselves in situations, and we, have, we are called to say things to people that they really don't want to hear. Um, I got an email a couple weeks ago from someone that I'd been, I've been working with and I've had to confront for years about how they treat their family, wife and children. And um, yeah, he, he finds me and Trinity Park deplorable because we in, intervened in ways that were good for his wife and his children and their marriage. Um, I, I think that when we speak truth, because Elijah had this direct line to God and could say, thus saith the Lord, after what he said, I can't do that. Um, so if you ever have a pastor or a leader who claims to have a word of knowledge or a word of the Lord for you, um, I would probably uh, run and go talk to someone else. Um, but, but you do need people in your life, whether, and you may find yourself in this position too, of course, as a good friend uh, to someone else. You may find yourself in a position where you're trying to figure out, how do I, I feel like I should say something. It feels important enough. How do I do that? And so I think for us, the best way for us to speak both grace and truth is in community. So rather than Elijah just like feeling like, man, this is my thing, I got to do this, I think it's good to be able to live in community and to be able to speak to, to others very carefully, not in gossip and slander, so, you know, limit the circle, um, but, but sometimes you need help discerning, should I say this, how should I say this? It's important, though, that at the end of the day, that we are people who love one another well enough to speak both grace and truth to one another um, after we've really sought the Lord and sought wisdom in community. Because we need it, because the reality is there are plenty of Jezebel-like figures in the lives of people who are going astray. And if you're addicted to porn, I guarantee you, you can find five people today who will say, me too, and it's hard, isn't it, and oh well, um, it's not that big of a deal, everybody struggles with it. Um, if you have a difficult marriage, I guarantee you can find someone who would say, I can see why you'd want to have an affair. Guarantee, it's not that hard to find. Um, someone who will say, if you're having conflict in a relationship, I would be angry too. Don't show weakness, make them repent first. You can find it all day long. That's what people will tell you. You deserve to be happy, so the thing that, you know, fill in the blank with the thing you really want, go for it if it'll make you happy. You can find those people. There are Jezebel-like people all throughout life, but we need people who have redemptive relationships with one another, who can help, who can intervene, who can speak the word uh, humbly um, to others in community. So you and I and David and Ahab need God's word from his spirit and from others that will intervene in our lives and break the momentum of sin. We need to hear God's word. And sometimes we can't hear it ourselves, 
because we're like Ahab and we're vexed and sullen and we're throwing a fit and we're in our bedrooms looking at the wall and we need someone to bring us back to our senses. And that leads to the final part of the story, verses 26 through 29, which is shock, repentance, and surprising grace. So I've got to admit, when you read, as Keith was reading through, you're reading Ahab. I mean, this guy is just despicable, right? I mean, he is like literally, like you read it, you're just like, God, like, it's hard to think through people that are worse than him. You know, you can think of a few maybe, but he's really, really bad. He makes me want to scream. At every point during the story, he drives me nuts. And I don't, with people like him, like, it's hard to deal with people like Ahab. I don't even know if I know anyone like Ahab, but if I did, it would be rough. And so probably the greatest surprise so far in the entire book of Kings, and one of the biggest surprises in the Bible, is that this guy repents. He really actually does. He actually repents to where God would say to Elijah, do you see the humility of this man? Do you see the humility? Do you see that he repented before me? I'm still going to bring consequences on his family, but I'm going to do it differently because I see, I see him and I see what he's done and I forgive him. I forgive him for what he has done. This is a surprise repentance. It's amazing we say this at different times, but truly, if Ahab is not beyond the reach of the grace of God, then there is no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. No one. So that person in your life that you're tempted not to pray for anymore because you're like, I'm just so done with them. Or that person that you really want to come to know the Lord, you love them, but they really have hurt you so much. And you just want to give up praying. You want to give up believing that they could repent. Maybe God will shock you. Maybe he will. Maybe you're someone who is here today or you're watching online and you've kind of built your identity on being someone who has done so many things wrong that you're just going to spend the rest of your life trying to pay God back for all the bad things that you've done. Or maybe you're someone that's like, you know, I respect your faith enough to come to church but you've built your identity on being someone who just doesn't believe personally. Why don't you shock us? Do you, do you really want to build your identity on being someone who can't really be forgiven? The Bible says you can be forgiven. You can be. You just have to repent. And that's all you have to do. That's it. And that's shocking. I'll get to that in just a second. Do you really want to build your identity being the person who is like, well... That's true for you, but it's not true for me. And I'm going to build my identity on being this individual person who has my own unique faith. Why? And I know if you've come this far and that's kind of who you are, do you have to be that way? Could you change? Could you change? Could you shock us? Could you shock us by repenting? But I think for, for a lot of us here, the shock of Ahab's repentance calls us to follow in his footsteps when the Spirit of God confronts us. Ahab needed forgiveness. David needed forgiveness. I need forgiveness, and you need forgiveness. Are you the kind of person that when you repent, it actually shocks people? They're like, whoa, I was really not expecting that response from you. And this is a Christian, you know, you're, I'm talking about a Christian person. 
but you're a Christian person who shocks people by repenting. And, I mean, we can get there. You can become so hard in your heart and so difficult to deal with that you just don't, you just don't repent very often anyway. But repentance in the Christian life should be one of the most normal things you do in a day. Why? Because repentance is simply agreeing with the Holy Spirit about what God is saying to you. Repentance is simply saying, there are times when I'm just driving down the road and the Lord will convict me of something, and I'm just like, you're right, God. That's right. That's repentance. I just aligned my heart to the Lord. Like, you're right. You're right. Lead me. Help me. That's repentance. That should be normal. That should be basic. Because it's not just a way to stop the, the momentum of sin. It's a way to experience the grace of God. Repentance is a way to experience God's grace. And if you're not repenting very often, there's probably not a lot of grace flowing through you. So that's repentance. I encourage you to repent, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But I want to talk for a moment about this, that the fact that God shows mercy to Ahab actually really bothers some people. Um, If I'm honest, because I still have gospel growth to to do, it it bothers me a little bit. Um, there are people like this in the world, I just kind of want to see them pay, you know. Just, and the fact that he, he repents, and that's really it. Because what else is he going to do? He can't do anything to make up for what he's done. He repents and God forgives him. He, God forgives him on the simple basis of repentance. That's amazing. But if you're looking at it and you're going, wait a minute, this guy destroyed hundreds and thousands of people's lives. He's like... He's akin to a Hitler-like figure in that time and place. The guy was a, a megalomaniac. He hurt a lot of people through really bad leadership. So he repents and God forgives him. Yes, there are still consequences outside of that. But still, how is that possible? How can God be just and forgive evil like this? Well, the answer is found at the cross of Jesus. If you want to turn with me, I'll close with a little bit of an explanation of Romans 3, 22 through 24 to help us make sense of the justice of God in this moment. You can find it on your phone, obviously. Romans 3, 22b through 24. And Paul writes this, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So from God's perspective, we're all sinners. David, Ahab, you, and me. None of us can stand in the presence of God. He goes on, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ on the cross paid the full penalty for sin. He paid the full price to redeem Ahab, to redeem you and me bringing us out of isolation and into his family, bringing us out of sin and into grace. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is not a word we ever use, so let me explain that. It's very important in this passage. Propitiation means to take on or to appease or to assuage is another word we don't use very often, but to appease the wrath of God. So Christ on the cross, all the wrath of God against sin for everyone, as Philip prayed so well, 
who would turn to God's presence for every single person that would turn to him, including Ahab. Christ took on all of the justice of God. Think about that. Think about the value of the cross. That all of the curses that God calls down on Ahab and his family, he put them on his son. He pours out his wrath on Christ as a substitute so that he could be true to his justice. God hates evil. He hates sin. But he's also full of mercy and full of love. The father pours out all of his wrath on the son And it says at the end, to be received by faith. How do we receive the propitiation of Christ? By faith. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They're like heads and tails. They're two sides of the same coin. If you repent and you turn from your sin, the other side of that coin is faith. Faith, you have faith in Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus Christ. You don't, merely turn, you don't merely repent. You can't because as soon as you start repenting and turning from your sin, you're turning to righteousness. You're turning to Christ. So how can Ahab be forgiven of all of this? How can you be forgiven of everything you've ever done? How can that person that you just loathe, but you really want them to come to Christ, how can they be forgiven? Because all of the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. So that anyone, David, Ahab, you, me, we can all turn to Christ and experience not guilt, not shame, not a halfway love that barely brings us in but holds us at bay and makes us prove ourselves. No, he brings us all the way in. Because of what Christ has paid for, you are totally forgiven. Jesus paid it all. The cross is the answer for our sin, but the cross is also the keystone for our obedience. So where do you go to change what your heart wants? That's also what Ahab needs. He needs to be forgiven, but he needs to have his heart changed, so he wants something different. How can you you change? How do Christians change We change by going back to the cross. We change by going there often. We change by going there and seeing what Christ has done for us. It's not a cheap grace. Yeah, it's free, but it's not cheap. It costs Christ everything. And so there, as we see the love of God there for us on the cross, it changes us. Over time, we begin to be transformed. We are a new creation immediately but we learn to live in this new creation life and we we actually start to want different things so that our call to worship makes sense to us. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs and even faints for the courts of the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The Lord is a sun and a shield, Blessed are all who trust in him. The more we know Christ, the more we can say to that, amen, that's true. The more we can take our sinful desires, we can crucify them at the cross with Christ, and we can go out with new desires. We begin to believe the love of God in Christ for us really is better than all the treasures of Egypt, all of our neighbor's vineyards, anything this world has to offer. 
because it's the place of love, it's the place of grace, it's the place of transformation for us. And that's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? How can it be that you would take on all of God's wrath that I deserve, that we deserve? You would take it on and you would be crushed so that we would never be crushed so that we would be welcomed, so that we'd be forgiven, so that when sinners repent, you can be true to yourself, just, holy, and loving loving all at the same same time. time. Lord, we We marvel marvel at the gospel. gospel. We marvel that that you forgive forgive wicked wicked sinners sinners like like me, like 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 us, and you you welcome us us into a a new story story where our desires can change. Father God, would you lead us on in this? Help us to transform to be more like you. In Jesus' name.